Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by my good friend David Moser, academic director of the CET program here in Beijing. And how are you on this wintry morning in Beijing? Yes, blustery. Is that the word? Drizzly. Drizzly, blustery, yes. But I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. So, David, got a question for you. So, when you finished college, back whenever that was, uh, what was the it city or country for, for Americans of your generation to head to, you know, to kind of rusticate for a couple of years with that experience of living abroad? Hmm, that's interesting. I don't know. It seems like at that time, China was not yet no, on the radar. No, definitely not. Definitely yeah, not, not yet on the radar. But uh, in terms of overseas visit, Yeah, overseas. Right. Hmm. Oh, I guess your generation was still going to Canada. Not that's for, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, right, we were escaping it. things. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I was maybe tail end of Japan. The Japan era was maybe coming to an end, and for people a couple of years younger than me, it was definitely Prague. I mean, Prague was like where you went. Everyone went to Prague. They wrote for the Prague Post. And they, you know, they, they they met Václav Havel, and um, and yeah, they they you know read a lot of Kundera novels. Um, that was the what the early '90s. Um, but at some point, um, maybe it was as late as the Olympics. I feel like. China and, and specifically Beijing and Shanghai became sort of the it destinations for a lot of people. Um, and, and and maybe it's, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like there are an awful lot of people I know who now, uh, they finish college and they decide, I'm going to spend a year in China. I'm going to spend a couple of years in yeah. China. Um, and I mean, I guess it, it would be horrifically immodest to suggest that it might have, you know, the potential to be a, a Paris of the 20s, right? I mean, I've heard people, you know, make that suggestion, but, you know, where's our fucking Gertrude Stein? Where's our our, Stein, our, our Hemingway? Where's our Fitzgerald? You know, where's our John Dos Passos? Uh, what's up with that? I mean, we somehow have not... Well, you know, arguably, uh, you know, in terms of art, the art world, in terms of money, the Beijing is certainly in Shanghai becoming art capitals of the world, if not sure. the art capital, as far as where are the Picassos, in terms of uh, expats who come there and make that their home. We're, we're banning yeah. that word. We're, we're not Sorry. Using that word. <laughs> the, uh, the type of person formerly known as expat. <laughs> <laughs> we're calling them migrants now. Migrants. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. Uh, maybe those people are here, Kaiser, and we just don't know them yet because we're of this generation. And within 20 years, there will, there will, the books will come out and the Gertrude Steins and the James Joyces will be there and you just don't know it. Maybe some of them are in our midst right now. <laughs> well, we do have Pete Hessler. Peter Hessler, but he wasn't writing, of course. I mean, he, he doesn't live here anymore. He lives That's in right. Cairo, but uh, he wasn't writing fiction either. He That's was right. writing nonfiction. Uh, it doesn't matter. Well, uh, still, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see some of the fiction writers. But, you know, uh, I think there is 
there is one little group of individuals here who are making a a, a splendidly good effort to encourage and to collect and to uh, offer a platform for the publication of writers of both fiction and, and nonfiction. Uh, and that, of course, is The Ant Hill. And in time for the holiday season, there's a new anthology or an anthology of, of English writings by people living here in Beijing. Most of them, uh, you know, I guess foreigners, some of them also Chinese. Uh, indeed, actually, David, both you and me have little things in there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the volume is called While We're Here, China Stories from a Writer's Colony, and it was lovingly assembled and edited by the two gentlemen joining us here in the pop-up studio to talk about it. So we have Alec Ash and Tom Pelham. So Alec, uh, of course, hello, Alec. Hello, Kaiser. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you, of course, are the founder and the queen ant of the ant hill. Is that is that a fair? <laughs> That's <laughs> my preferred term <laughs> right, on right, weekends, right, at least. Right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, this writers' collective, uh, the online content of which you you drew all this anthology, uh, this anthology from, uh, and then of course Tom Pelham, who is the fiction editor of of the ant hill. So, welcome, guys. Good to, good to have you both here. Uh, when does the book come out? Uh, the book is uh, launched in the Beijing Bookworm on Friday. The 27th of November, which I think will be uh, before this podcast goes out. Yeah, it'll be, will be, right. it'll be up on Amazon, should be about a month after that, hopefully in time for uh, that Christmas stocking. Ah, terrific, terrific. Um, so actually, this anthology contains pieces by well, many Seneca guests who have joined us here before, including Anthony Tao and uh, Sasha Mitashek, who else? Carl Seltzer and Robert Foyle Hunwick and Laszlo Montgomery, Jeremiah Jenny. Who else? Carl Setzer. Carl Setzer, uh, yes, yes, of the Great Leap. Um, so that's that's quite a number. So Robert uh, Foyle Hunwick, right? Yeah, we, we mentioned mm-hmm. him. Uh, I was out drinking with him last night. In fact. RFH, I believe. Is RFH, <laughs> Mr. RFH. Um, so let's let's start with before we get deeply into the anthology itself. Let's talk about the Ant Hill uh, and the the origins of that idea and uh, what inspired you to do this. Sure. Well, uh, I set up the Ant Hill in autumn of two thousand and twelve which is when I got back to Beijing after a couple of years in London. Uh, I'd previously done two years of hard time in Wudako, learning Chinese from 2008 to 2010. And uh, I set it up as I was going back to Beijing to write full-time, and I set it up as a bit of a sandbox for my own writing to try and uh, find some sort of voice for myself with while still getting feedback. And at the same time, I opened it up, and I wanted to become an open house for anyone in China who had a story to tell. Um, originally non-fiction, which is the genre I work in, and then uh, pretty soon after Tom joined as co-editor and we expanded it to uh, fiction. I guess uh, the spirit in which I set it up is I was slightly fed up with news about China and I was slightly fed up with blogs which were echoing the news about China and I felt you would read the same thing 20 times. I wanted to find and to publish for stories which uh, which no one else could tell because it's your neighbor or it's you and your story in China. Uh, and I find that those that kind of narrative style storytelling just personally engages me more and I think it's a way to get under the skin of China in, I think, uh, a more meaningful way if it's done well. Presumably there are some criteria that you apply though, right? Um, you don't just let any old schmuck yeah. contribute a piece of nonfiction <laughs> writing and well, I did in the beginning. I think we're getting more selective now. I have a pretty laissez-faire attitude to it in general. I think that uh, you know, uh, all, most stories are interesting. Uh, there, are, there are some which we avoid if a, if a story 
if we feel that it falls into this wacky China trap, which is the biggest trap for certainly foreigners writing about China, sort of, I came to China and this wacky thing is happening. And that's, that's just not interesting on its own merits. You've got to do something more than that. Maybe, Tom, we can talk about the wacky trap a bit. I mean, it, it happens in the fiction as well. Um, I, and there are a number of, of, of traps, right, David, I think, in, in writing about China. Maybe let's, let's tick some of them off. What, what are, we, we've talked about that, though. You know, hey, you wouldn't believe the, the, the weird shit that happened to me while I was here in China. I think for me, um, I guess my big pet peeve is it's so rare that I encounter believable Chinese characters written in uh, and, uh, they, right. they just they, they don't have that that authenticity to right. me. Uh, it's difficult, of course, to ever step into anyone else's mind and to, to sort of plumb the depths and, and, and make them believable. But it seems particularly to plague writing on China. Um, I mean, I dare say even some of the writing in, in this anthology actually maybe falls a little bit short of what I would would have hoped. Um, what are what are some of the other pitfalls that you're trying to you try to? I don't know about a about? genre, but one thing that really pisses me off is people who misrepresent the depth of their own understanding at the time of, in the incident that they're describing, as if as if they understood everything everyone was saying. They had a very you know good grasp of the situation. I've seen so many accounts of, of 1989 where they they say you know then a guy came up to me and said, "Have you seen this?" And I got in a car and I went over here and. Then, and they seem very clear. There's never any misunderstandings. There's never any, you know. I when the think truth is more like, oh, wait, wait, what was that? Yeah. What did you say? I mean, if the person were to tell the truth. Do you say, speak English? <laughs> yeah, right. Some guy came up to me and said a whole bunch of things. And he said, he said, do you want to do that? And I just said, yes. I had no idea what I was doing. And I got in this Jeep and I ended up someplace I didn't even. Right, they never know. admit that, that, that it's completely chaotic. I, I think mean, even nowadays, I mean, this happens to me all the time. But people pretend that. Their Chinese is so good, and they, they had these deep conversations with two people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think funny. that's also missing some of the most interesting material sometimes is how uh, a foreigner who maybe doesn't have great Chinese engages with this country. Yeah. Like, that's rich material for writing as well. You don't need to pretend that you know it all to, to write something engaging. I've seen the whole process of language acquisition depicted um, in fiction and in nonfiction a few times, I think, very cleverly. In nonfiction, Peter Hessler, again, I mean, I think we've actually talked about it on this show before, in Rivertown, how he jogs past the sign and then, you know, sort of like letters on, on a Wheel of Fortune board, mm-hmm. they, they sort of yes. start like, right. turn turn up more and more, you know, yeah. more and more of the characters become recognizable to him. Um, at this point, perhaps we could mention that uh, both Tom and I are huge Peter Hessler fanboys, sure. as are a lot of people of our generation. Me too, me too. And most of the people in this book uh there are a few sort of grizzled China hands such as yourself, but uh, a lot of them are people uh, sort of in their 20s, early 30s, like Tom and I, mm-hmm. um, to whom sort of Peter Hessler was a role model. Tom and I even made a little pilgrimage. We rented a car and drove up to, was it Sancha, his yeah. village up in, in the hills. And yeah. Tom, you came here um, having read Rivertown, right? Sure, yeah. So I, I arrived in, in 2005 having read uh, Rivertown my last semester of college, uh, kind of got the bug and decided to, 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 to show up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an interesting point about, um, you know, because I think I've heard one criti- criticism of Rivertown, for example, is saying, you know, for people who have spent time in China, you know, he's describing things that we've all experienced. You know, he's, he's describing the language learning process, like you were mentioning, Kaiser, or he's um, describing, you know, teaching English and things like that. And to me, what, what really kind of separates his type of writing from a lot of, you know, for example, submissions we would get to the anthill is not so much the, the material itself. Um, you know, it can be well-trodden ground in terms of learning the language, in terms of having a language partner or teaching English. But, you know, the treatment of it and the, the, the insight that you're able to, 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 to offer, those kind of things. I mean, that's what we kind of look for when it comes to um, the anthill. 
and what we were looking for with this with this anthology. So I mean, there's certainly uh, you know pieces in the anthology that are about things, are about um, experiences that are um, you know common that a lot of people had. But the thing that's 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 uh, special and kind of fresh about it is the treatment of it. I would say, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, I think that uh, you know it's it, it's easy when you have great material that you can just kind of go you know be, be straight ahead, describe it in a in a in a, in a straight ahead nonfiction way, or even give it fictional treatment. But um, you know, we think that you know. With this anthology and with with the stuff that we've done with the anthill, it's kind of a it's kind of a mixed bag in terms of stuff you may experiences you might um, you know recognize as someone who spent time in China, and then stuff that's just really um, you know quite quite different as well. Right. Actually, I I think that the test uh, of of a writer is your ability to write uh, a rather banal kind of you know quotidian experience yeah. and do it in a way where the, the prose really carries yeah. it, and you know you, you terrific economy in your sure. In your, Get, getting to the anthill and, the, and also this collection, uh, do you were you Alec or either one Tom uh, trying to f- sort of put something uh, in a gap that I that that I didn't realize was there until I sort of saw what you were doing, which is there's a lot of accounts in obviously mm-hmm. in the news media from from news reports, from books, from scholarly books, and from from a lot of Chinese people firsthand accounts of uh, of, of books of different historical. Uh, issues, uh, cultural revolution, whatever it might be, you know. Um, but and and then you have uh, what we who live here have, which is constant sort of Lao Wai uh, analysis, mm. rehashing, uh, you know, translating onto our own terms. But there there isn't a lot of literature out there, high quality books and things out there, other than the rare Peter Hessler type of things, where people are foreigners are actually writing about these same things from their mm. vantage point in a serious and informed way, or even sometimes just a, a, a rather con- confusing way. Is that something you were a- attempting to do with this anthology? Sure. Well, I, I definitely think that there's a, um, an abundance of huge journalistic talent uh, in Beijing, particularly really the cream of the crop. Um, my personal preference is for personal narratives, and it could be your own story, or it could be the personal story of someone else who you've really gotten to know and gotten under their skin. Uh, and that's the kind of writing I like, and that's the kind of writing I like to publish. Uh, picking up on your question of a gap to fill, I think that there's a lot of focus when people talk about this and talk about Hessler about white guys coming to China. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I personally think is much richer terrain in, for writing, much richer subject matter in many ways, is ethnic Chinese who were perhaps born overseas whether they're Chinese-born foreigners, foreign-born Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they've, they've got good stories. There's one right. piece in the collection by Courtney Han, who was born in Beijing and then moved abroad, I think, to America when she was five and moved all over. And now she's coming back as an adult in her 20s. She spent a couple of years in Mozambique, and now she comes back to Beijing, and she goes to her dad's Laojia, her, you know, her ancestral home with her cousins. And it's a sort of road trip story. And it's really about uh, identity. Um, it's, it's called Roots and Leaves, and it's about um, recovering that sense of heritage. Um, and I'm perpetually fascinated by the stories of um, someone who was born in China but then moved off. Uh, the whole Luoyue. Yeah, One of the interesting, I mean, the title itself is While We're Here which suggests, of course, the kind of ephemeral nature of, of the time that uh, 
uh, foreigners tend to spend in in China. Um, do these sojourners uh, <clears throat> in Tokyo or in Berlin or in Prague or Paris do they? Is there an analogous body of literature like this? I mean, um, do they do the same sort of thing? Are you aware? I, I'm, but what is it about? Because you know, this is not the first collection now of of sort of um, writings by uh, mm. sojourners living in in, in China um, and. The other one is what, what was Unsavory Characters? Is that the one that I'm thinking of? Elements, I think. Elements, Unsavory Elements. Elements. Also published by, by, by Grammar and Shaw. And there's also one of um, women, um, foreigner, writing about uh, China called uh, How to Dress to Buy Dragon Fruit, edited by Shannon Young down in Hong Kong. Okay, no, I've not read that one. Um, what, what is it about the, the experience here? I mean, is it just the, the extreme otherness of it? Is it this... That, you know, there's always the fish out of water element. In, in, I, mean, I don't think it's necessarily always a fish out of water. I mean, there's just great stories around. I mean, it's yeah. a very dynamic place. Um, so whether you're giving it, you know, uh, you know, nonfiction <laughs> or, or fictional treatment, I mean, there's just there, it's just a really kind of ripe, ripe, ripe place for for stories. Um, in the foreword to the book, um, Alec wrote that you know that a lot of the stories that are included in this collection or in the Ant Hill, um, you know, would kind of be the type of stories that you would, you know, lose at the bottom of a cocktail glass, I think, or something, mm. as you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. like the idea that, you know, we have these stories, they're, they're kind of rumbling around, and this is uh, just kind of a platform for, for telling these stories. Um, so, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily, that they're all not coming from one particular voice or one conceit of like a fish out of water or, um, you know, like we certainly wanted to stay away from kind of the wacky China stories like Alec was mentioning. Um, but yeah, it's a... Um, I, I think it's. I think there's something about the place in this point in time um, that kind of lends itself to to kind of interesting stories, and and also it's it, it's we're at this interesting point in in history where you know people are kind of in, feel empowered to tell their stories, so they have tools, they mm-hmm. have you know yeah. blogs and websites right. and stuff. Right. Whereas you know before you would maybe you know be hanging out somewhere and somebody would tell you a funny story. Uh, or an interesting or insightful story. And now we kind of have a place to, to collect them um, in a way. So I think it's kind of a confluence of all those things that, that makes it, um, you know, that, that, that makes it good, uh, a good place for material. Well, I couldn't agree with that more. I, I, I have an 18-year-old daughter who's, who spends a lot of her time in, in the Stanley Twin area hmm. and comes home and tells me stories, uh, you know, of things that happen. And I tell her, you know, pay attention to this because uh, getting back to the, you know, when will China be, uh, Beijing be the Paris Right. of the 21st century. I mean, I, I say pay attention to these stories and things because I really believe these will be the, the subject matter and the place settings for lots of novels, short stories and things. Yeah, I definitely... Then, because, because quite right, it's it's someplace like that in Beijing is an interesting mix. It's at China at a particular time, a rising China influx of a very multicultural of uh, you know, foreign environment and and just a lot of that that mix right there is, is a mis- what's mis- taking us what's taking us so damn long though i mean why haven't we seen this happen i mean paris only had you know a, a decade or more i mean it's only after 1918 uh well for all we know it's happening for all we know somewhere well, yeah. between the third and fourth ring road there's some uh, semi-alcoholic right. uh, english teacher who's writing the chinese that, government that, that of, maybe the sun it, we're not rises. drinking enough i mean i think that certainly <laughs> I think can't the be problem. the case i think that's the problem i think we have really crowded informational universities these days there's that's too damn much stuff out there that's really. what it is that's really what it is there's yeah. just too i mean it's yeah. because of these same wonderful democratizing properties of the internet yeah. that we're also just losing too much there's yeah. a difficult sort of to signal to noise ratio mm-hmm. and there's just so much dreadful writing there's 
so much yeah, dreadful walking. There's so many of those retold tales, and then you know the, that, and there's so many of the embarrassing genres that have emerged, like the whole sex pat genre. Mm. Um, mm. You know, you, you're Beijing Bounder, and then more recently, Alec, you, you actually wrote a scathing review of some guy, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell us right. about this. That was funny. I remember yeah. he, he did this sort of anonymous like um, right. yeah. response. Yeah. Tell that story. Yeah. That's this, a good uh, one. this is actually how I first uh, got in contact with the publisher of the book, uh, Graham Earnshaw. Um, uh, in the process of writing that book, because he was uh, a sort of pseudonymous character in it. Um, I wrote a hatchet job review of this uh, sex bat memoir called Shanghai Cocktails. That's C-O-C-K-T-A-L-E-S. Oh, how clever. <laughs> By uh, Tom Olden, not his real name, um, who was in Shanghai for a, I don't know, a decade or something. Um, and his parting gift before he left was this sort of tale of his uh, exploits, uh, and I did a bit of a hatchet job on it, and then um, I got to hand it to the guy. His response was pretty hilarious. Yeah, it was, it was, it was he, he posted a video uh, where he is in front of the camera with uh, his face concealed by a T-shirt, I think a T-shirt of the book, uh, and his voice is distorted in this ISIS sort of jigsaw style. You know, greetings, Beijing cream. Greetings, Alec Ash. Um, and in the background, there's this um, uh, Chinese lady... Uh, in a bra chopping a carrot right. very very slowly and very badly um, um, and he made I suppose some legitimate points is that he felt that uh, his experiences um, um, as a sure. sexual conquistador were interesting I you know I mean my my objection to this genre of writing um, my chief objection isn't that it's uh, so much that it's sexist and has zero attempt to uh, understand Chinese women as individuals it's that it's boring. Uh, you know, unless you're shagging gourmet may, I don't think anyone really gives a crap. <laughs> you know, maybe the best... The high bar. <laughs> even no, no, even no then, you know, maybe you're the best writer in the world and you can um, write something fascinating. But, uh, you know, the literary reviews, bad sex and fiction award exists for a reason because it's very difficult to write about well. Um, and I just think for a better uh, topics and uh, it just it's just doesn't make the cut. It's not interesting enough. Mm-hmm. Tom, talk about fiction that's come out of China in in the last decade or so. Um, I mean, I think we're 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 familiar with some Susan um, Barker's. Sure. Book, or, um, uh, uh, sorry, the the, the, the incantations. 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 Sorry, yeah, right. incantations is the uh, sequel. We hope. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if Susan is listening. Yeah, yeah. You know, there there haven't been that many novels that have. You know, there's uh, Rock Paper Tiger, mm-hmm. uh, a few a few other titles. That are set in China or, or have Chinese, you know, prominent Chinese characters that are written in originally in English. Um, what's what's up with this? What's what, what what's preventing this as, you know, as a setting for stories? I mean, it seems like my God, you know, with the the pace of change, what it is, uh, just the, the 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 huge human ethical moral crises mm. that that kind of underpin life here. How is this not more for, fertile soil for fiction writing? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a good question, and um, you know I don't you know I don't have a, a, a really clear answer. Um, you know I don't think that it's necessarily you know if we're looking at Paris in the twenties, for example. Um, you know I, I don't think that we can necessarily say okay, well you know they got their great you know they got their great novel you know ten years down the road, and so it's not going to be on the same kind of like timeline. I think for all the technology related reasons um, that we mentioned before. Um, I, I mean, I do think it's great, fertile, um, you know, uh, fertile ground for for, for a novel setting. Um, I liked uh, I liked Susan Barker's the the, the incarnations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I thought it was a it was an interesting uh, uh, kind of form, um, and and I thought that it was it was 
it, it did a good job of kind of marrying the past and the present, you know, with all the, the historical research that she had done. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm waiting and uh, and uh, you know, I'm definitely kind of uh, kind of on the horizon, thinking of uh, of you know when the great big realistic um, you know novel set in China could be. Um, and, and what what it might be a, a part of. Um, I'm, I'm working on uh, something myself, which me is, too, is me a bit too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think actually I remember one of your old columns, Kaiser. You said something about you know, like every expat has a uh, has a um, you know like a, a fifty half-free. fifty page uh, of of a, of a novel that is is better better left abandoned. Um, a screenplay or a novel. A screenplay or a novel. <laughs> right, right. So I mean, I think that it's uh, you know I think that there, there's there could be things out there that there are people are people are working on, but I totally agree. I think it's a great, um, especially a place like Beijing, uh, is, is a really interesting place. And I don't have a, I don't have an answer of why why, why we don't have it. Um, I think that there's um, you know there's there's some good collections of um, um, short fiction out there. Um, you know some of the stuff that we published on the Ant Hill as well. So I think that you know in 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 kind of shorter form, short story form or flash fiction form. Um, I think people are giving uh, China its due in, in fiction. Um, it's also, you know, hard to write a novel. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. long. Um, nobody reads books the way they used to, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's, it's, um, I think it's also this kind of compression of attention. And it's such a fast-moving place, you know. You write, mm-hmm. you work on a 10-year novel, and it's like, okay, well, you know, the whole, know, the whole place is completely right. different, mm-hmm. too. I mean, it's a little bit, um, it's, a, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a moving target. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think that, you know, our, our, some of the best writers um, in China now are journalists. And I think that, you know, there's so much to cover and there's so much to, 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 um, to, to pay attention to. It's, it's hard to make time for, for creative writing as yeah. well, too. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's kind of a silver bullet answer. Well, but I, uh, I have three observations anyway. One is I always thought about this myself. And I always, whenever I thought of writing short stories about China, I thought, but well, what's really happening is so much more interesting than anything I could mm-hmm. concoct in my head <laughs> yeah. is one thing. Sure. And, and another thing I think that maybe is intimidating, not only the, the time factor you're talking about where China changes so fast, by the time you finish your novel, the place you, you set it in is, doesn't exist, right? right. Uh, but uh, the other thing is just simply that uh, – China's very complex place. Uh, you may think, you know, I want to write a novel set here or you know, you know, having to do with my experiences, but you realize that it's not your culture. It's very hard to do that. You could only write it from a viewpoint of a, of a, of a foreigner. Right, and, and then what do you do? do you, are you the hapless kind yeah. of are you dopey sort of, guy you know, trying but, to figure it out? Are you the earnest and, but the and third, tolerant, the, good-natured, good The third sport. reason has to do with more marketing considerations. Kaiser, you know, wrote some some brilliant stuff uh, for the Beijinger, you know, the, this, the end notes, you know, the, the, for the mm-hmm. issues that are, that are wonderful and they're very, uh, you know, they, they're, they're just a dictionary of all the different kinds of things that happen to mm-hmm. foreigners in Beijing and, and ways of looking at it. But the problem is most of the audience for that is people who live in Beijing, uh, foreigners who live in Beijing. It doesn't yeah, it's, act, it's only act, intended for those. Exactly. You know, so references to Richard Claderman is not going to get yucks, you know, in America. Whereas there, I just bust a gut. <laughs> so, I mean, all these things. So even if you do write something that is you know, set here and mm. just is redolent of the, of the atmosphere here, most of it's going to be lost on the foreign readers yeah. who are just going to get a vague sense of the exoticism of it. So all those things together make it a very imposing to even think of writing significant fiction about yeah. this book. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that, you know, the great China novel is necessarily 
um, you know, going to look like what we consider like, you know, the, the great the great expat novels and in other places right. before. I mean, I don't think it necessarily has to be, uh, you know, capture the entire zeitgeist right. of, of, the, of the whole country. I mean, China's a way bigger beast, I think, than, you know, Paris was in the, in the 1920s, right? right? At least in that small kind of or expat Or even America in Lolita in, in Nabokov's world where he could write about small, time, small town America right. in such mm-hmm. an amazing way. Yeah. I think it's it's he couldn't do that now. Yeah, people are trying. There's there's one novel which was I think published very recently, uh, which is called Up to the Mountains and Down to the Countryside. By yeah, I have a copy Quincy of that. Quincy Carroll. That's got to be a nom de guerre, right? No, no, no. Yeah, it's it's actually called Quincy. Yeah. Um, I know his sister. So it's about. Have you read it? It's about two American teachers out in the boondocks. Right. I, I've started it a couple of times. I just have not had time to. Yeah. Um, you know, the publishers asked me to, to to read it, and and the authors contacted me as well. Um, and I will at some point get along. Um, you know, get to it. Got a long list as everybody does, but um, yeah. I mean, I definitely, I'll, I'll definitely double down on what David said in that. Uh, you don't need to invent if you know anything that you invent in China is going to be less interesting than what you can find just by going out onto the street and right. tell those real stories. I th- I personally think that where fiction can come into play is how a foreigner interacts and engages, uh, and those sort of questions of identity. I think that's that's the uh, the sun also rises waiting to be written. The the interesting test is is very difficult. I mean, so many mm. people conflate interesting with simply weird, yes, or yeah. or, or yeah. you know exotic. Or, Laughable, you know, <laughs> those dopey Chinese, they're, yeah, they're right. weird sure. ways. Well, this, well, this is why we write stories. This is why we humanize because people who don't understand a subject matter, you have to start from somewhere. Right. Uh, often that place you start from is a stereotype, an idea of China as bad or political or China as wacky. But uh, you can also start from human beings. That's something that everyone can relate to. And that's definitely the philosophy of uh, the Antil and the mm-hmm. pieces in this collection. So why don't each of you uh, talk about some of the pieces that you that are in the anthology that you particularly liked and what it is that you, you liked about it. Why don't we start with you, Tom, and some sure. of the fiction pieces that you... Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, one piece that, that, that I wanted to talk about that's, that's quite good is, uh, is a short story called Dumplings. Um, in, in the collection, it's written by a writer, Michael Salmon. Um, and the conceit is is kind of two two foreigners, one who has been in China for six or seven years, speaks the language, um, knows the place, and his cousin who's who's visiting him, who has you know I think lived in China for for a few months, um, and it's a really interesting dynamic. They go out to they go out to eat at a dumplings restaurant. Um, and uh, the kind of the, the grizzled expat whose name is Charlie in the story is um, is kind of very self conscious about being seen, um, you know, in, engaging with China. So they go to this restaurant and they sit down. His his cousin brings out a Chinese chessboard, and you know, uh, Charlie, the the the, the older expat, um, is like, no, we don't. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be seen playing. What would the Chinese people think if they saw us playing Chinese like in the dumplings restaurant? Like kind of meta, like very self aware of this. Um, and uh, the, the story kind of proceeds on that way. There's this tension between the two characters, between you know someone who's who's kind of fresh off the boat, more wild-eyed, just um, with with no tools to really appreciate, engage with China, but with that impulse to do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas you have the other the other the, his counterpart, someone who has the language, has the tools, but just is a little living too much in his head, doesn't really right. appreciate the place. Um, and then there's a crisis in the story and the kind now of those, are, those are two types I've encountered. Um, yes. And I think, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it's not written as a parable, but I think it is kind of it, it, there's among kind of expat uh, types. I think that, yeah, I mean, that we've all seen. I think it's an interesting kind of interplay between the two of them that I that I really enjoyed reading. I, I skipped um, that one. I, I need to go back and read that. It sounds like a really good one. Yeah. It sounds terrific. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it speaks to some of the themes in the book as well. I mean, we called it while we're here speaking to that transience 
both of foreigners who feel like they're, you know, maybe not going to live there here for their whole life, maybe passing through, and also to the transience of China, which changes all around us mm. as we remain static. Um, and, you know, some foreigners get that seven-year itch uh, if they come out of college, as, as Tom and I did. Yeah. Uh, one more from you. For, sure, sure. Other fiction pieces um, yeah, so another one that, I, that, that, that is great um, is a piece um, called uh, Love Anywhere. Um, the writer is Hannah Lincoln. Um, and it's also a short story. Um, in this one, she's actually describing two Chinese um, kind of university classmates who just finished school. Um, and one of them is kind of an aspiring rock star and decides that he's going to come down from Dongbei to follow his dream to be a rock star. And he's kind of um, followed by his uh, his friend, who's kind of a kind of a more introverted, kind of a gopher um, kind of character. They come to Beijing, um, and there's uh, and it's and it's a really interesting kind of um, without giving too much away. Um, as they're finding their fortunes, there's kind of an unrequited love um, kind of angle between the b- b- between the friends, um, and so you end up with this very very poignant um, kind of situation toward the, the end of the the end of the story, in which you know the kind of uh, the, the, the kind of um, the rock star character who has never like even thought of his friend in this way um, is uh, is kind of confronted with the fact that his his university friend had been kind of pining after him for for so long and had followed him to China and had opened a bar so his you know his rock star friend could actually play followed him to Beijing um, right. followed him to Beijing that's right yeah and it's uh, it's it's really well, that, touching that, that must be very very difficult to do i mean i know hannah um, she's sure. very smart she's a very good writer but this i mean writing two chinese characters writing as a female about a right. erotic relationship yeah you know, well, that's ambitious. It is ambitious, and, and you know, yeah, and but I think your endorsement suggests she pulls it off pretty well. Yeah, I think so. I think wow, so. Great, um, great it's great. very in my you know we all have kind of different reading tastes. Um, my editing tastes tend to be more toward um, you know stories that that, le- that leave a lot kind of untold that that are very um, delicate about it. So you know, to, to to be honest, I read the story a number of times without even kind of realizing there was this kind of element to it. Uh. Um, and so you know, I think that that the best type of fiction, um, at least by my by, by my lights, is 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 the type that um, you know really kind of indicates towards something, um, but maybe doesn't pull you right over it's the finish line. Nose with it. and it's not right, right. I think that's so. right. So I mean. You know, I mean, we could argue forever. You know, can can you know can a, a you know a foreigner write a, of a Chinese character in, in in a truly truly engaging way? You know, that's one of the joys of fiction is to play with language, to play with voice, and to play with um, all these other things, um, and to to experiment and to to try different voices on. And I think that that you know, I, I definitely encourage foreign writers to to write from a Chinese perspective um, because I think you know uh, you know why not? Um, right. I don't think it necessarily we need to bind ourselves to this pseudo-autobiographical kind of like fiction writing about, you know, what we did and what our experiences was. I, I much more appreciate um, a good attempt, even if it maybe falls short of, of verisimilitude than, than, you know, than anything else. Well put, well put. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Let's turn now to the nonfiction stuff. And Alec, why don't you make a couple of recommendations of pieces people should really... Sure. I think there's a lot of great stuff in there. Oh, as sure said, is, yeah. um, As you said, Kaiser, any anthology is going to be hit and miss. There'll be some stories that you love, some stories that you hate. Uh, I think there's a few sort of really wacy, fascinating pieces in there. One is by David uh, the, about 25 years. That was a, years. Great, piece. a great piece. I mean, I don't want to blow smoke no, up your ass, no, but that was just... It's about Chinese jazz. Right. It's, it's uh, about 25 years in Chinese jazz uh, and sort of we're flung into this... Uh, Jam in the early 90s, I believe. Um, and David looks across and there's Tsui Jian playing with trumpet. Uh, that's one. Uh, RFH has another one, great one, on one of Beijing's last 
down but, in Phum Thai. Shuang Shuang Xingtang, right? Um, also the setting of that great film, Xi Zhao. Um, yeah, the, that that film was called. It's by Zhang Yang, who's uh, yeah. one of the the great shower. Uh, directors, fifth generation, uh, fifth generation directors. Um, I want to talk about one by Sasha Matushak, yes. um, who has been on this podcast. Uh, he lived in uh, Chengdu for a while, um, and he wrote this uh, story from a village on the outskirts, one of these kind of uh, Nongjiala villages, uh, quite a few years back. It's called Flower Town, um, and he talks. Uh, he talks about trying to be part of that village and, and sort of falling short in many ways. Like he's he's not immediately welcomed as part of the community, and I think some of the people there see him as a bit of a sort of down and out foreigner who doesn't really have a job. Um, and then the Oet earthquake strikes, and uh, suddenly there's this sense of solidarity and camaraderie, uh, and everyone pulls together to to get through this. Uh, and then later, the village itself is torn down by developers, and it just mm, it hits a lot of notes for me about. Laowai local relations. I think it's a story which uh, it, it's well told. Sasha does a great uh, job with it. Uh, it's quite long, I think six thousand words, uh, but it's it's a good read. I like that one. And that that is a thread that that goes through much of this book and much of our lives. I'm sure it's you know this eternal question of can we ever actually belong here? Mm. Yes, that's very good. And Alec, your piece actually is a somewhat kindred spirit to that to Sasha's yeah. piece because in fact those two pieces stick out. I actually have not read them all. I admit, I admit but, it's, but but those two pieces stick out in my mind as as two attempts to earnestly, simply try to embed the, your consciousness in the Chinese space and just mm-hmm. talk about it yeah. with, without you know making fun of it or laughing or or anything or making you the point of it. I mean, mm. those two pieces are I think really succeed in that. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I knocked out my piece um, in sort of week before it went to press because we we as we put the collection together, we were looking for threads that tied it together we came up with this phrase while we're here which we felt reson- would resonate with some readers um you know we're not trying to make a, a, a statement about it we know that some lifers perhaps yourself included would feel that you can belong here uh, our publisher graham earnshaw certainly feels that way that uh, you know he's, he's not here um temporarily um but for a lot of a lot of the foreigners in the collection these are the questions we live with day to day in this place which um, for however long is our home. You know, we might be here two years, we might be here 20 years. While we're here, it's home. Uh, and the question is, how, how, can it feel like home? Can, do, we, do we belong here? Um, yeah, I don't think you need to pull a kitto to explore these things. Let us not pull a kitto. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we should, we should hear something uh, from this, maybe some, if we would maybe read a couple of extracts from stories. I'm, I'm fascinated by this dumpling story you were just talking about. Um, maybe there's an appropriate passage, Tom, that you could read from that, which um, you've already set up, so I think people understand the story. Sure, sure. So so there's two characters in this story, um, Gary and Charlie. Um, Gary is kind of the fresh off the boat foreigner. Charlie is the one who's been around a while. And they, uh, I won't read from the beginning, but they, 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 leave, um, they leave Charlie's apartment and they're walking down um, toward the dumpling restaurant talking in... in and what, what I think you're kind of in Gary's head, seeing the sights and sounds of China, and I think it really kind of speaks to the, um, the, the kind of excitement that people have um, when they first arrive here. The area was neither rich nor poor, Gary thought. He kept recording details, the, rails, the rare signs of movement and life, while Charlie walked a stride or two ahead, quiet and straight. After 15 minutes walking, they emerged on a main road. 
Here, suddenly, people conglomerated and burst across roads without traffic lights. Taxis dropped off and picked up. The pavement had small areas for sport, exercise, and outdoor seating. The air smelled fresh and damp as if water was nearby. Some low canal going green with weeds and algae. Most importantly of all, hundreds of places to eat. By far, the majority of the shops were restaurants or window stalls for takeaway. Gary and Charlie turned left and brushed by the entrances, waiters running in and out, and they could see food on tables, bright dishes, rice bowls, teapots in more expensive places, metal cylinders full of wooden chopsticks and the cheap, full of wooden chopsticks and the cheap ones, yellow-walled, crowded paper table coverings, dirt on the floor, meat on racks, cigarettes steaming, kitchens open, the walls adorned with calligraphy and pictures of farm animals and menus all in Chinese characters. Each restaurant seemed in the middle of a celebration. Gary asked his cousin why he hadn't brought him here before. He didn't get a clear answer. You see that place with the Jiaozi sign? Charlie shouted over the noise. That's where we should go. What sign? Where? The red one. That one. Inside, the restaurant was cloudy with condensation. Wet ceiling and walls trickling down, being mopped up by paper towels all, all along the windowsill. Each dish was served too hot to touch and still soaked with steamer water, burst out with mist every time one of the couples or family groups who surrounded them picked up a dumpling and bit into it, panting from the temperature and then laughing together. Gary smiled at this too, looking at the wall displays of immaculately photographed dumplings, trying to spin his chopsticks on his fingers, holding up and sniffing the vinegar bottles. Charlie looked uncertain, awkward in this new, different environment. When the waiter approached, he spoke with the fewest words possible. This is what I want. Gary insisted they try a whole bunch of different kinds, even though Charlie thought three gin was way too much food. It would be a bad idea. If I could speak Chinese like that, I'd do it all the time, Gary thought. Ask how, how's, how's life? How's business? What was the point of this reluctance to fit in, this refusal to enjoy being in China? Hey, see what I got, Gary said as they waited. He took out a, a tiny plastic container from his jacket pocket, a Chinese chessboard. It was a travel set with creased plastic sheet, which had a grid lightly printed on the top. Cool, huh? I bought it last weekend, and it was only three kwai. Playing it back in the apartment is fine, but we should come out here and play outside like the Chinese do. Charlie looked doubtful. Come on, you don't want to rematch before the food arrives. I'll give you a decent game this time. Um, no, that's okay. Why not? His cousin shifted in his seat on the other side of the table. It just seems like, I don't know, drawing attention. There may not be time anyway. What's the worst that could happen, Gary asked, annoyed suddenly. People, people will see it as some kind of statement. I don't know. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say, so someone will come over and speak to us? Is that what you're afraid of? Mate, we live here. <laughs> speak to us? Both of their tones had quickly changed. They're not going to speak to you, are they? They're going to speak to me. Oh, for fuck's sake, fine, Gary said, and he put the set away. And then they stopped and left it on the side of the table, unopened but visible through its clouded plastic case. The food arrived, and the, and the waiter put three bowls piled with dumplings down in the middle, the potential playing area gone. Wow, that was wow. really good. The, description, the street description was astonishingly good. Yeah. Wow, I, I really look forward to that, and, and, and much else in this collection. We, we should also plug for poetry, I think, just very quickly. Um, Anthony Tao is uh, poetry editor of the Antill, and there's right. some great pieces of doggerel in there, including a Christmas poem by Kaiser. This yes, show is actually yes. probably going to come out around Christmas, so maybe uh, it would be appropriate if I uh, read. read. It's, it's short. It's a, a silly little piece of, of, of doggerel. Um, and and, and by the way, 
Doggerel is not a pejorative term. It is. No, it's not. Oh, it's got to be. It, it no? is. It is. No, I mean, I mean, is is no, the word limerick a pejorative no, no. term? Well, but I no. mean, it, it. But it's still, it's 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 silly. It's light. It's. <clears throat> this is called Old Chokey Christmas, festive doggerel by me. In winters all still, in the sun's scanty rays, filtered downward in pewter and silvery grays, I find myself strolling down memory hutong to Beijing in winters when life was more putong. Glazed roof tiles girded in glistening icicles, sonorous bells on still plentiful bicycles, cabbages, coal smoke, and good shayang ro, and sidewalks all covered in soot-blackened snow. The winters seemed colder, and hohai would freeze, while the snow would collect on the boughs of the trees, it's rare now to see cabbage st- stacked on the stoop, which by springtime would rot to gelatinous goop. The tempting aromas of sugar-fried leedze and yams baked in oil drums wafts to your beadze. Or sweet, crunchy skewers of red-candied haw, which are no longer sold come the early spring thaw. No Christmas-time feasts back then, nothing so grand. We MacGyvered it up with the scraps we'd at hand. Instead of the turkey, and after ate brandy, we guzzled Yanjing and ate white rabbit candy. It may be the earth has been globally warmed. It may be my memory by time's been transformed. But winter these days doesn't feel so romantic as the pace of life toggles twixt hectic and frantic. Modernity offers its own winter charms, though I'm not sure it helps more than it harms. Both April Gourmet and, of course, Jenny Lou's offer comfort food cures for the grim winter blues. And with broadband these days, the chill might not trouble you, even considering the damn GFW. Though internet blockages make us quite bitter, we still manage access to Facebook and Twitter. The web offers so many ways to enjoy all those holiday classics I loved as a boy. I sit by my space heater, warm in my choku, and stream It's a Wonderful Life off of Yoku. We send SMS mess to spread holiday cheer in nativity missives at least half sincere, and Hanukkah greetings as well if you choose, since half of the gringos in Beijing are Jews. <laughs> the net has made giving of gifts all too easy, from Zhengban to Shanjai, from Tawdry to Cheesy, and what could beat Taobao for buying your presents to have them delivered by tricycling peasants? The traffic gets bad, but it's bad in each season. To get me across town, you'll need a good reason. I normally don't mind the subway at all, at least in the spring or the summer or fall, but with everyone wearing a fluffy down jacket, each subway car needs extra staff just to pack it. They shove you inside just as hard as they can, like they do for the rush hour trains in Japan. Come winter, the nightlife does not drop a beat. The revelers give off enough body heat. The bars are decked out in the Christmas decor, meaning lights they've left up since the season before. Hot toddies and mulled wine and eggnog with rum, though prices, I fear, are princely ass some. With globalization, wherever you roam, the holidays won't be too different from home. But I wonder if that's what it should be about. With each passing winter comes reason to doubt. So for Christmas this year, I'm inclined more than not to dine with a family on mutton hot pot. As for wintertime goodies completely indigenous, is goose all that better than fine roasted pigeon is? An old choky Christmas. Now, what could be finer than spending the holidays right here in China? It's the small things they say that make life worth the living. Intentions, not price tags, make gifts worth the giving. Those home comforts can't match the fresh candied haws or the chestnuts or yams. Suck on that, Santa Claus. <laughs> oh, 
There are tears in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's 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 the, probably the worst thing I've ever written. But it was, it was, it was cheeky scansion. I, I have to. You know, Brendan O'Kane dropped a couple of those, and and actually gelatinous goop actually came from you, David. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I have to claim credit. For yeah, you David, do. You gelatinous do. goop fame. Yeah. Yeah. No, but but. Uh, a, luckily this is on the podcast because the only 4,563 people who can appreciate that probably will get to hear it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, great. That's I mean, so so it comes out November 27th and it'll be available on Amazon. It's called right. While We Were Here. China Stories from a Writer's Colony. China Stories from a Writer's <laughs> Colony. And check out the Ant Hill. Uh, dot org at and it's uh, and contribute and contribute yes. absolutely I mean yeah, there yeah. are uh, many writers among our listeners yeah. I mean I, I, I get lots of great letters from people all the time uh, and I, I, I suspect that you have some we hope to do some more events too we did a couple of events we talked a little about uh, 1920s Paris and all of the booze we've, we've done uh, yes. we've done two it's events one was called Writers and Rum which was in Suju Bar which is a great bar in the hotel yeah. and the other was called Scotch and Stories at the Bookworm so I guess we're running out of puns right and you put me toward the end <laughs> and I was and already and completely yeah. Te- tequila and tails yeah, yeah that should right. be coming out in February done. done gin and journalism brandy and books <laughs> Okay, uh, but uh, thanks, guys. That was wonderful. And you'll stick around and, and, and make recommendations with us, I hope. Sure. sure. Okay, yeah. Why don't we start with you, Alec? Uh, okay, uh, I have a two-part recommendation, but um, they're both recommendations about walking. Uh, Beijing is a great walking city, uh, even in winter, especially in winter. Um, the first is <coughs> a book, which is one of my all-time favorite Beijing books, which I don't believe has been recommended on the podcast before. It's called The Search for a Vanishing Beijing. Mm. It's by... Uh, oh, yes. wow. That's great. Do you know um, this one? You, yeah, uh, by Aldrich. Uh, M.A. Aldrich, Aldrich. Uh, from 2008. Yes. So he was, a, he was a lawyer in Beijing. I don't know if he's still about, but he certainly well, lived here for not. 15 is, years. Yeah. This is um, came out seven years ago, 2008. Yeah. Uh, but he was a long-time resident. And what he's done, he's uh, fused uh, fascinating history of uh, Beijing with some suggested walks. So you can walk yes. through the Gulo area and he'll tell you, you know, for example, you know, uh, the drum tower is 99 feet high because spirits were meant to cruise at 100 feet to, to avoid it. Um, and you can follow his footsteps around these uh, walks and get a sense of old Beijing uh, if it gives from all of the uh, honking and concrete. Uh, and the second related recommendation is an app. It's called a Voice Map. You can download it on uh, iPhone and presumably Android. Um, one of the people who runs it, Ian Manley, was was a Shanghai guy, um, now based in South Africa. And they're walking guided tours. Um, so you plug in, it hooks up to your GPS, um, and it speaks in your ear while you're walking, and you can follow yourself on the map. And there's a couple of routes around Beijing, um, one by myself, I did a... I, I was going to say, I was going to have you recommend that, but I didn't realize that's part of the app you're recommending. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's on the app. Um, so my walk is maybe takes about 40 minutes. It's from the Drum Tower to Yonghe Gong Lama Temple, so through some of my favorite hutongs, which is also the subject I wrote about in my piece in the anthology. And the second walk from Beijing is by Paul French, and you follow oh, wow. yeah, the, yeah. like Pamela's footsteps from his book, Midnight in Peking. And yeah. See the related podcast, right? Um, and I think there's a, there's one from Shanghai as well, and it's good fun. Um, one caveat to readers is that in China, the GPS is just fucked, so yeah, you have to download the route, then switch off Wi-Fi and data on your phone, right. then open the map in offline mode. Oh, really? Because on on my map, it takes us as it takes readers walking over Hohai, like I'm some sort what, of what pipe map piper. are you using? 
Um, I think it's just all GPS. All in GPS China is, is just a little squirrely. Actually, no, the actual no, location is not where you think. I, I won't is. make a plug. So. <laughs> Tom, what do you have for us? Yeah, um, yeah. So I have a uh, I have a book recommendation, a non-China book recommendation, um, which is is one that I just finished that was uh, recommended by uh, my lovely girlfriend, uh, called uh, Dispatches from Pluto, and the writer's name is uh, Richard Grant. Um, so uh, Pluto is the is the the town of uh, is the name of a town in Mississippi. So the, the conceit is this is a, an English writer who was living in New York, um, who's in his kind of late forties, uh, writing for magazines and 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 kind of travel writing and things like that. Uh, he took a trip down to the Mississippi Delta, like very deep south uh, Mississippi, uh, and to visit some friends and fell in love with a house, um, like an old plantation house. Um, out in the middle of, of nowhere in a place in a town called Pluto, population like 30 or something like that. Uh, he buys the house and he and his girlfriend move down there. And it's uh, the book kind of traces their year plus uh, living in this uh, very remote part of Mississippi. Um, so a lot of stuff on uh, food and music, a lot of race relations, um, wildlife, um, hunting. Uh, it's 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 very funny. Um, it's a very funny book. So uh, it's very Bill Bryson-y in a way. It is, yeah. I mean, and it's very, uh, it, but it's very sympathetic to to things uh, to you know to the people in the South. I mean, you know, Mississippi has has got a lot of uh, you know social ills and problems, um, but he's very sympathetic to the people. Um, it's uh, it's it's a really it's a really great read, um, and it's always nice. I'm American. It's always nice being kind of reminded of how incredibly exotic uh, my own country is <laughs> um, to, to some places after after everything seeming so normal in China. It's kind of reading about you know the deep south in Mississippi is just like seems like uh, an, an entirely different world. It's a great recommendation, Tom. Yeah. Dispatches from Pluto by uh, Richard Grant. Richard Grant, excellent. David, will you have uh, just real quickly? Uh, a uh, nice series, uh, video series online that I, that was uh, indirectly recommended to me by Victor Mayer, but I discovered it. Uh, it's called in Chinese. It's called Logi Logi Siwei. Yeah, logical, logical thinking. thinking. And the, the the host is this wonderful guy named Luo Zhengyu. Very engaging, very funny. He basically it's it's basically whatever he wants to talk about, but it's mostly Chinese history, uh, it, comparative history, East and East and West differences. Uh, you know, issues of politics, uh, issues of, uh, of the DNA of Chinese culture, of Han Xue, of Confucianism, whatever he wants to talk about. Where, where's he based? Uh, in, in China. I'm not sure. It, okay. I'm not sure uh, if this is broadcast uh, or if it's only an online mm-hmm. existence. It's on YouTube, which is where I, where it's, what I downloaded from. But it's, it's great for people who just want to kind of beef up their Chinese listening because the subtitle, there's, you know, Chinese subtitles. Uh. And a lot of it goes over my head and I look at the subtitles and I've, and I've got it. The main thing is this guy, Luo Zhengyu, is a very fluent, wonderful speaker, looks right into the camera and just blabs away. Wow, in that fluent great. and beautiful what Chinese. a great recommendation. Yeah, and it's fun to listen to and you learn a lot and he's just a great guy. How do we find it? It's just we just look up Google, Luo Zhengyu. Go on YouTube and look up Luo Zhengyu. Okay, okay, wow. Or on, on just, uh, probably on Yoga too. <laughs> well, Terrific. I, I have uh, just one quick recommendation, uh, and it's in anticipation for a show that we'll be taping hopefully in early December with Christina Larson, who has just been really killing it writing on all yeah, sorts yeah. of science topics uh, in Scientific American. Uh, on November 17th, she published a great piece called China's Bold Push into Genetically Customized Animals. Uh, it's a, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting, but it, it looks at the CRISPR, CA9 technology. CRISPR, if you haven't heard of it, C-R-I-S-P-R 
usually written in all caps, uh, is a, a essentially a gene editing technology that was developed really very recently, only 2013. I think it's going to be one of the most transformative technologies of our time. Um, this basically uh, uses um, the uh, immune system of, 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 of prokaryotic cells. Uh, they, they developed a, a system where they can very easily use an enzyme knife to basically cut out very specific pieces. You can you can tell uh, this CRISPR system to go in and cut out a particular gene, float some genetic material you want substituted for it in in the, the general vicinity, and it will re it'll insert and uh, astonishingly it will pass on that new genetic code to you know future generations. So every nightmare you've ever had and every fantasy you've ever had about about. You know whether it's 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 you know Hitlerian Ubermensch or super soldiers Creating or a race or, of or a giant Superman or whatever. Right? But um, but also you know um, solving hunger and, and uh, I mean it, it's it's amazing. And I'm pretty sure it was a Radiolab episode on. That's right. That's where I first heard of it from Radiolab. Um, and I've been fascinated by the technology ever since. So Christine is going to come and talk about work that's being done using CRISPR here in China, uh, where the bioethics are slightly different, or you know. Um, it's it's she, she's written a very good piece. Please read it ahead of of, of the podcast. Yeah, and for it's cynical on. listeners, you can get three hours of college credit biology if you listen to the podcast. <laughs> thanks, given guys. By, given by Kaiser. Alakash, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, man. I really look forward to reading the rest of the anthology. Tom Pelham, thanks very much for for coming on, and uh, it was great having you. And uh, thanks for that reading of this terrific uh, short story. Yeah, thanks. Forward to that. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me, David. Man, we'll see you next great. week. And uh, happy Thanksgiving. Um, you'll hear this late uh, to all our um, American listeners. We'll see you next week on Cynic Podcast. Okay.